welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle Curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Today, I'm talking with Grisha Stewart, a professional dog trainer, author, and international seminar presenter based in Oregon. She is the creator of Behavior Adjustment Training, or BAT and BAT 2.0, for fear, frustration, and aggression in dogs. BAT effectively teaches social skills, gives dogs maximum control of safety, teaches you how to arrange a safe scenario and interact with triggers in socially acceptable ways. Well, the interaction is for the dog, but (laughs) you get what I mean. Grisha also has a few tips on running puppy classes effectively and advocating for your puppy in someone else's class. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Grisha. Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Adina. Happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. Yeah, a behaviorist recommended your BAT training, B-A-T-A. Do you call it BAT or B-A-T? BAT. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I started, you know, Googling and looking at some of your stuff and I thought, oh, she'd be fun to teach us new perspectives on dog training and, and reactivity and all this stuff that I know lots of people deal with. Yes, it's a, a very common issue, definitely, all around the world. Yeah, yeah. So... I'd like to start off to find out your dog story. Tell us about your history with dogs. Well, it starts at a very young age. So we had kids, I had dogs growing up when I was a kid. We had a lot of dogs and my parents didn't, uh, you know, back in the day, didn't do spay and neuter. And so at one point we had 30 dogs. Oh, wow. And uh, so we had three females who had puppies all at the same time. And uh, so that, yeah, that was extreme. We lived in the country, so that worked out. And um, then. We didn't do a lot of training, but then actually when I was babysitting, I, I, I met with this woman, or I, I actually I didn't meet with the woman, I, wor- I worked with the dogs. The child was like, oh, here's, here's how you train the dogs here. And we did agility. And then it turned out, and I'm now forgetting her name, but she was the inventor of like one version of agility, which oh, was, I had no idea. Yeah, I found that out much later when I went to uh, a NADAC uh, uh, like show or uh, to compete with my dog um that it was like wait this is this is the the thing that this is the woman that I babysat her daughter in fact I told her I babysat her daughter and she said no you didn't we never had a babysitter I was like uh yeah you did and so that <laughs> it was kind of funny it revealed the whole thing of their history when she, when she was traveling so um but anyway um, so that was, I, I brought that home and trained that with my dogs. And then I, um, uh, who was my like old dog Barney and he was like, okay, I'll, co- I'll cooperate with you and jump over these jumps and do these things. Uh, so fast forward, I was a mathematician and in graduate school and my housemate had a dog and I started being interested in the training she was doing, which was with corrections. So she was training with the, you know, the collar. And I didn't do any of the training, but I was observing. And then later, uh, a couple of years later, I got my own dog and just fell in love with training and, and started volunteering at a shelter. So I took a class and then started volunteering at a shelter 
um, socializing and training the dogs there. And then um, ended up assisting in a class. And um, and then at some point, the the woman was like, you should have your own classes. And so I thought, well, I could maybe do that. And so I was teaching math in a community college at the same time that I started my own business as a dog trainer. And this was probably, oh, I want to say like 17 years ago. And um, anyway, and so I was... I was teaching nights and weekends with the dogs. And then I ended up quitting my, my math job and realized that nights and weekends were actually when all the customers were available too. So like, it didn't occur to me when I was doing nights and weekends that this was actually one of the, the limitations of the job. <laughs> True. <laughs> you thought you um, had just like, that's where you were stuck. You were stuck in nights and like, weekends. Yeah, I thought it was like, just because of me and my schedule. And then I realized actually most clients can only meet nights and weekends. Um, although in the middle of COVID, that's totally different now. And as I got more um, kind of higher up in the field and, and people were looking for me specifically, then I could set my own schedule and did, you know switched into daytime training and all that. But, um, but definitely at first it was a lot of driving and a lot of um, nights and weekends. Mm-hmm. So, um, and actually let me, let me tell another piece of the dog story, oh, which sure. is, as a trainer, my my training switched from um, so always using positive reinforcement, but switched from getting the dogs to do what I wanted. Um, so my dog Peanut was very well trained. He could, I would say, back and he would run backwards like a hundred feet and uh, like all these tricks, and he knew a ton of things. Um, but my my focus shifted as I grew as a human um, to more meeting the needs of the animal. So understanding what did he need from me um, to make this, um, you know, to, to make the most humane care. Um, and so the last five or so years of Peanut's life, um, he passed away about four years ago. Um, so the, those years were really spent in teaching him how to be a dog again. Um, so to like, just go run in the forest and you don't have to look at me the whole time. And, uh, and so doing, uh, sort of untraining a lot of my training. Uh, and so my training now really is based on the what's the minimum that I need to do in terms of training, um, like a sort of addicted response from the dogs um, to make it so that they're safe and that they have the care that they need. So I focus a lot on grooming, body handling, teaching dogs to be cooperative in that, sort of offer parts of their body and to know what's happening. Um, and then also, of course, on the reactivity and aggression. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're probably not doing obedience competition at this point. No, no more <laughs> obedience competitions. Yeah, that's for sure. I like having different perspectives like yours on here because I tend to be more like I the whole point of obedience is to have a, you know, quick response and to know that it's going to work out okay and also build a relationship. You know, that's sort of like mm-hmm. part of, you know, working together. So it's uh-huh. hard for me personally to let go of the idea that sit means sit right now and, you know, all of these things, uh-huh. not because I have them down perfectly or that I'm an amazing trainer, but it's still like in my mind, that is what it's about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I like to be challenged. I like to have different perspectives. And I know that there's pieces of this that really resonate with me too, in terms of like, mm-hmm. I am not just the Lord over this animal, but it is also its own being, right? Who mm-hmm. should be, um, nurtured and cared for in ways that make sense for it right exactly. like as humans we learn things about like love languages right and someone 
prefers gifts. And so you have to think about like that means love to them or service or, you know, touch or whatever versus just like, this is what I, this is how I like to give love. So you better, you better like it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I love that you brought up the human side of things because that's definitely one of my passions now is, is humans. I have a course that I teach called how to human that is sort of a collection of all of the things that I found that that helped me thrive. And it's as sort of the community around that is, is really wonderful. And, um, this, this concept of meeting needs is, is it, you know, obviously super important for people as well and articulating those needs and finding a strategy that works because needs never conflict. What I need and what you need would never conflict, but our strategies may be in conflict. So the, what I do may make it so you can't meet your needs and mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, and then the same thing goes, with our dogs so if I have a cue for a dog that is it's a request it says if you do this thing this will have a way to meet your need and if they don't do it if we get angry or you know or coercive or whatever else then it becomes a demand right or in dog language or dog training language a command and that's true for human communication right so if I have a request to you that's a way for you to make uh, like I say you know I would love it if you could do this, which would be a way to make my life more wonderful. Um, if you do it, that's great. If you say no, that should also be great to me. It's a, just a request. If, the moment it becomes a demand, it becomes icky. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's one of the things that I think that we, that we do as dog trainers is help people figure out how to navigate all their relationships. And so Um, that's one, I mean, dogs are not people, but uh, the more we learn about how to find win-win solutions that meet the needs of both parties, um, the better off the whole planet is. Mm -hmm. So that's my big picture. (laughs) Thank you. And what, tell me about your dog that you've got on your lap right now. Uh, so this is Bean and he's four years old. I think, oh gosh, four or five. Anyway, he's no longer a puppy. uh, (laughs) Yeah, he's no longer a puppy. Um, and uh, yeah, I think they're four and five. I hope it, so. I think it's just like um, you know, my brain not wanting them to get old. So it's possible that they're five and six. Uh, anyway, it's funny. I was a mathematician before as a dog trainer, but numbers uh, are not my specialty. It's more theories. Uh-huh. Working um, with them rather than remembering them. <laughs> that's right. And also, right now, I'd have to go back in my history and be like, okay, I got them at twenty seconds. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he is a um, Chihuahua miniature pincher cross with something else according to his DNA test. So probably um, I'm thinking like flying fox. Mm. Um, <laughs> he's and, foxy uh, in color. That's foxy right. Color. Um, yeah, and he's awesome. He's um, I got him at six months. He was reactive to dogs, uh, so he was biting dogs in the face when I first got him. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, which is not healthy when you're little because somebody's gonna snap you up. So, um, so I did a lot of that with him when he was a puppy, which like really helps him. He can now navigate social situations and, um, yeah. And then I have spoon or not spoon Zuki on the floor. Um, and she is a miniature pincher, cocker spaniel, toy poodle. And, um, let's see, Chihuahua. So she's sort of a doodle because mm-hmm. she's a poodle in there. Somewhere in there. Do you have a favorite <laughs> breed? Like if you were to, you know, pick a dog based on breed, do you have any favorites? You- you know, I I don't really um, because I I try to really focus on the individual. But I have recommended doodles to a lot of people. Have you? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think they're pretty well rounded. They're 
optimistic. They um, they don't really get their brains for the first couple of years, as far as <laughs> I can tell. Um, but they're you know they can be hypoallergenic and then um, but just like they're sturdy. And, like for people who have they're looking for a family dog, a lot of times I'll recommend that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would say. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably never get a, a like a purebred dog. So I always just get like whatever dog sort of shows up at my door. Yeah, <laughs> in a good way. Awesome. I'll have to send you a link to our article on how to choose a responsible breeder for those people who end up going to get a doodle from a breeder because it's so popular now that everyone and their cousin is breeding them, and they're not always doing a very good job. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I do have an article actually on my site about how to choose a breeder and then also a different one about how to choose a rescue dog. Oh, um, awesome. But yeah, it's uh, I have a friend who has technically has a doodle but or had um but she she's passed away since um but she calls her a, a just a, a poodle labrador mix rather uh-huh. than, you know, you would say. I do that too and I don't know who the person is because I don't know if they're going to think poorly of the, you know, this is a labradoodle and they'll be like, "Oh, that's not a breed. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. And also, it's not a breed. And I think that's honest, <laughs> too. Yeah. You know, and, well, and it, I think breeds are just weird, personally. So, like, I don't know. It's, I just have a weird perspective of the, for, as a dog trainer, because um, I'm sure lots of people are all into that. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, I think do- there's more variation in, within a breed often than there is between breeds. And so, uh, a lot of times, it's sort of, Yes, we can count on certain things about a breed, but I also think that people need to remember it's a study of one, as Susan Friedman says, that every dog is really an individual. Yeah, that's true. So I always try to warn people, if you've just met one doodle, you might want to meet more. (laughs) And if if this is your first dog, a friend of mine says, go meet dogs, like go to a dog park and just see if you like dogs before you think this teddy bear dog is necessarily going to be different than dog, period. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Because a lot of people turn to doodles for their first dog because they've heard, oh, it's hypoallergenic. It doesn't shed. It's super perfect and teddy bear looking uh-huh. and and they miss the whole part where it still does all the doggy things <laughs> still right, barks exactly. it still, still needs a lot of exercise yes and, all those things yeah. and there's a wide variation in energy level between the major breeds that are used in doodles and so there could right. be a very high drive poodle that was one of the parents or a very hyper mellow lab. labrador or hyper lab you know yeah. so I, we really try to do a lot of education so people are prepared for what they're getting into. And I'm actually waiting on a standard poodle litter because for a lot of reasons, but I've had two rescue doodles, one breeder doodle, and now I'm going for the parent breed <laughs> to see. You know, I think that would be great to sort of, yeah, just to see like, what is this side like mm-hmm. as well? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. And I've liked all my pet. doodles. So I imagine that they have a little bit of a common theme coming from the standard. So. Uh-huh. Anyway, tell us a little bit about um, BAT. I don't think we've said what that stands for. Tell us what BAT stands for and how you came to this idea and some of like, you know, what is the, what does it mean? Sure. Uh, so BAT stands for Behavior Adjustment Training. And the idea is that we're adjusting the behavior, but we're keeping the function of the behavior, the, the purpose of the behavior intact. So the dog is able to meet his needs. Um, so in particular, BAT is a, a strategy, it's a philosophy and a technique about how to get dogs to be comfortable and empowered around a lot of different things. So people, dogs, um, 
skateboards, whatever else, especially with social objects. So with other people and with dogs and other species, um, but learning to navigate those social situations in really appropriate ways. Um, and you can almost think of that as like a meditation for dogs. It's a, it's about learning to put a pause between seeing the other dog or person or whatever and responding um, with that reactivity. So right now, a lot of dogs will, you know, they'll see something and then right away they respond with barking or lunging or whatever without really taking time to assess because they're triggered. They're in a kind of a traumatic response um, due to lack of socialization or bad experience. And what that does is it, it, we work um, sort of in the ideal form. We work at a distance where the dog is able to really take the information in and then learn to make better choices. So we're putting a pause between stimulus and response. And then what happens over time as you do these, these sort of training scenarios is that the dog can meet a dog right on the street and also still make those good choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but at first it's kind of like a rehearsal of what to do um, without, you know, it being quite so difficult. Yeah. Um, and I like that you then, said you know, rehearsal because I think regardless of your training methodology or philosophy, all good training, whether it involves corrections or treats or uh, bat, I think has to have a component of lots of practice without that distraction right there, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the, the punishment version of thing of training, it tends to be like putting the dog in the deep end of the pool and then correcting them for doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And so that is really the polar opposite of that. And it's, um, there's a phrase I heard from someone about relationships the other day of, um, taking it, going slow to go fast. Mm. Um, and, and that's what we're doing is we're trying to make it so that this, this, this training can speed up, um, by creating a safe scenario. Um, and so, you know, even though at first it feels really slow and weird and you're really far away, um, it's, it's, it makes it so that the tra- the training can go more quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And then of course, in real life situations, then we have to sort of use different techniques. And so I use what, um, what I call in bat survival skills. So things like, you know, giving a treat as we pass by or lots of treats as we pass by or arcing around, or um, there's a different version of bat called mark and move. Um, so there's, there's, you know, practical hands-on things you can do right away. But in terms of long-term, then it's, um, you know, that's where the more bat really shines. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I was to put it in really um, like modern uh, phrasing, right? So the, the um, working at a distance is essentially, or sorry, the, the walking down the street part, you know, feeding the treats is sort of like having the mask at the grocery store. It's not like the ideal situation. You're just kind of doing your best. Um, mm-hmm. And then the, the, um, the healing right? The actual, like going through the process of healing that people might do with, um, with COVID would be, that's what bad is about. So it's like really making sure that we're, we're building up immunity, social immunity, um, and that the dog is, is then able to just interact. Um, and you don't have to micromanage once they're done with, with that. Although it does become sort of a lifestyle that you listen to your dog, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is a nice, side effect yeah a two, two-way <laughs> communication that's the yeah. only kind of communication that really works <laughs> yes exactly right? yeah. yeah I love that yeah. you said go slow to go fast because this theme has come up like three times in the last couple of weeks in my life where 
I'm talking to one of my clients and I'm a dietitian on the side, you know, and, and I brought that up or something else came up and something else I was listening to. So I'm like, Ooh, I love this. (laughs) Yeah. And what I've heard is that, and I had, I did fact checking on this just yesterday, but EMTs are not supposed to run on the scene when they get there, they have to walk. And so that they don't trip over something they didn't see so that they don't scare the person they're running to all these reasons, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's Mm -hmm. a saying among them too: go slow to go fast rather than, you know, like just, and I think, and yeah, like so many discussions in online groups with new puppy owners are like, my 12 week old puppy just won't walk. They'll just sit there and they, or they'll pull, they're getting so stubborn. And I'm thinking it's not stubborn. It's, they have no idea what to do. They're like, you know, this leash is on me. You have to train the comfort of the leash. You have to train maybe not in a straight line down the street, you know, all sorts of ways to kind of make that those little steps toward being able, being able to walk on a loose leash down the street for 45 minutes is a huge outcome of a lot of little pieces of training. Right. Exactly. That's, I would totally say that. And it's, you know, and this, this idea with puppies, especially um, that, you know, that they need to be just like quickly walking with us right away is it's definitely not meeting the needs of the puppy. They are developing their sense of smell and their hearing and all of these things and their sense of what's, what's safe in the world. And the more quickly we rush them through things, the less they're actually noticing, which means that they're not socializing and they're not having an, an environmental experience. They're being distracted from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like being, um, you know, trying to have a conversation while you're texting on your phone with somebody else. So it's like, you're not allowing them to really engage with their world. So I like with puppies, I like to alternate between really just focusing on the environment and then 10 treats worth of clicks for a look at me. And then yeah. back to more like bat style walking where we have, usually with bat, we have a, a 15 foot leash or a five meter leash that they're meandering around on. They're not at the end of it all the time. They're, most of the time it's actually gathered in but it allows us to be able to let them out on their harness and explore a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I find that they're a lot more resilient as a result of that. Yeah. I like that too with puppies, just a long leash and stay close to them and let them kind of wander and play with you. And they're not going to be practice pulling because they're probably not going to want to be 30 feet from you. <laughs> exactly. You know? Exactly. And you can pay for when they do check in with you, with your attention mm-hmm. um, or, you know, retreat some of the times. Um, don't definitely like puppies will also, they are kind of overly trainable to an extent. So you can teach them as I did with peanut to look at you to the exclusion of all else. Um, and I think that I did him a disservice by training him too early to like focus, focus, focus all the time versus the default is you can go check out the environment. When I ask you for attention, then please give it to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Back and forth. Yeah. I'm curious about two things and you can pick one or both, but would you be willing to tell us, like, take us through how you use VAT with Pete, with Bean, um, Mm -hmm. in his like reactivity and biting dogs. And then I'm curious what you'd say for my 10 year old dog that is not aggressive at all. She has met multiple dogs on and off leash and is just fine and, and isn't even particularly playful at this age. But uh-huh. for her whole life, if we see a dog anywhere, she whines and whines and vocalizes. And if she's on command, she's really good, like holding a position. She'll uh-huh. be really good holding the position. She might still whine. But if it's any kind of moving activity, she you know loses it really quickly. No matter how much I've worked and trained, I've 
done corrections. I've tried not correcting and just focusing on <laughs> other things, but she still whines like crazy, mm-hmm. which is that the part that baffles me is she might just want to meet them, but then she wouldn't, couldn't care less when she did. <laughs> so uh-huh. if she just like was so playful or aggressive or something, I'd understand it more, but somehow it doesn't matter how far they are. If she could see them, it's like, ah, you know, my species. Yeah. yeah. So you can tackle either or both of those. Okay. Uh, let's see. So the, the long answer takes about two days. Um, <laughs> we had seminars on this, so I'll, I'll abbreviate. Yeah. Highlights. Um, yeah, highlights. Uh, so I'll work backwards in those questions. So I would say with with your own dog, um, so a bat is super helpful in terms of like you would start at a distance and do the meandering thing. If you see any straight line approaches when she starts walking directly at the dog, um, that's when we do what's called a slow stop. So we just essentially, you know, let the line kind of slide through our hands, but bring the dog to a stop. Um, and then you can kind of walk a little bit off to the side to sort of indicate what you want. Um, and then when the line loosens, then you kind of follow, but not, again, never in that straight line um, toward the other dog. So she's learning to kind of meander. Um, with frustration, I also add what I call mark and move and a particular version of that called zigzag mark and move where, um, so instead of the, the version that I just described where you're only meandering, um, basically what you do is... Um, so if they do look at the dog, uh, as long as they're going in a meander, you can keep following. But if, again, straight line, we do a slow stop, but then wait for disengagement. And the moment she looks away, it doesn't have to be at you, but looks away at all, click for that or say yes, and then toss a treat to the side. Mm. So about like 10 to 15 feet. So she's going sideways to go get the treat relative to the direction of the dog. Does that make sense? So there's like a 90 degree angle between... Yeah. The direction the treat if goes you're if you're actively working with the dog, the dog in front, exactly yeah. right, exactly, and you can do this out on a walk. Um, setups are great, um, mm-hmm. but but you could do it out on a walk anyway. And so then each time, then so she gets her treat. She's sniffing around, hopefully, and that's part of the reason it goes on the ground is that it kind of reengages her with the environment. Mm-hmm. And then if she beelines back to where the dog, slow stop, wait for that disengagement, click treat. So what you end up doing is kind of zigzagging your way closer and closer to mm-hmm. that. Um, and I find that that uh, they pick up on that fairly quickly. So it would be, you know, two or three sessions of that. Um, it depends on how long they've been doing it and what, you know, 10 how, years of whining. How, yeah, exactly. So 10 <laughs> years, it could be, it might take 20 sessions and that's okay. Um, uh-huh. what, what you should see is that if it's going to be working, you should see within that couple of sessions that it gets fat. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also fake it. Uh, so instead of using dogs, you use like a treat pouch or a loaf of bread or anything that you know that they want to get to. Um, so this is just a general pulling exercise as well. You can do it for that. Mm-hmm. So that's the answer to that. There's also the, the, the other thing to sort of throw at you is uh, there's a class that I teach called Barking Mad for frustration. And mm-hmm. so that has th- this technique, but also a bunch of other ones in it. Um, so that's on my site. And then in terms of being, one of the things I did with him was, well, I did lots of setups and then I also arranged walking groups. So I arranged a Facebook group that was just for him. Uh, so I said, I need to socialize my puppy and I need people, dogs who are not aggressive to other dogs and we'll do walking together and I will teach you everything I know about dog training while we talk. Well, <laughs> while that's we awesome. Walk. Yeah. And uh, so that was the trade-off for them. And, uh, and so at first I was only able to sort of stalk their group. 
uh, from far behind because that's what he could handle. And then, um, so we, they, they started walking and then I'm behind them following along and kind of, again, doing that same concept, um, in terms of if I see his excitement or his arousal go up, then I'll do a slow stop or, or kind of encourage off to the side. Um, it's a little bit different when you're following another dog, cause there is a straight line that mm-hmm. like they're all going in the same direction. So you can't just use that same metric, um, of like, if he's walking at the other dog, it's a problem, but, uh, you know, kind of looking for other signs of stiffness and tall and any of those things that says maybe he's a little too stuck on this. Um, and then, um, uh, so just kind of stalked behind them for a while and then eventually then started to do greetings, um, and I also would then worked with dogs individually into these bat setups as well. Um, so the key is really, um, I have a, a trainer friend that calls this boring aggression treatment. Um, <laughs> um, and so if you're doing it right, it should look like your dog doesn't need any training, uh-huh. um, that they're just walking around looking for a place to pee, for example. Um, so if it looks too exciting, it's probably not bad. Um, so that's the idea. And, uh, and the other pieces that I would do then on those walks was click and treat for attention as well, just to kind of give him a little bit more of a, um, so attention to me. Um, so just to give him a little bit more structure of what would, what I would want. Um, but also making sure not to do too much of that because I didn't want to turn him into a dog that wasn't looking at other dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, because I find in that case, dogs that can sort of like with yours, they can function when they're given a cue mm-hmm. when they're in working mode. Um, but the moment that you're like, you're on your own, they're like, cool. And, and, you know, and that's when you have your problem. Yeah. Um, so, so bat is really that sort of bridge between, um, completely on their own recognizance and working mode. This episode is sponsored by Adina Pearson Nutrition. That's right, when I'm not talking doodle, I'm helping women of all ages find peace and joy with food. I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in eating disorders, emotional eating, and breaking free from yo-yo dieting. Struggling with food is common for a lot of people even when life is normal. With the added stress of today's required social distancing and anxiety over what the coronavirus pandemic means for our individual and collective future, Feeding yourself in a normal and healthy way can get derailed. If you struggle with any level of disordered eating or obsessive thoughts about food, you will likely see an increase in these thoughts and behaviors during times like these. Or you might feel great pressure to eat just right from a place of anxiety and seeking to control something only to see it controlling you back. Or you might flip to the other extreme of putting your self-care with food way on the back burner and feeling worse because of it. If you're tired of food controlling your life or simply feel confused about what, when, or how you're supposed to eat in times like these and want to stress less about it without ignoring your health, I can help you restore peace and confidence to your eating. While I'm based in Washington, telehealth technology allows me to work with clients through many areas of the United States. Visit adinapearson.com to learn more. Don't spend another day fighting with food or your body. Reach out today to get started on a life free of food worries. You go to great lengths to take care of your dog's health. Don't forget to invest in your health and happiness too. Okay. So I, here's the like, what's happening in my head right now. Yeah, I'm envisioning, or it sounds almost like the dog is learning that it can 
like tolerate the presence of other dogs that if it looks away or looks at you or like it has these options and these have be and they learn that these are safe and calming like like that initial react that initial whatever they're feeling uh-huh. like at first that's their only way to cope is to like snap or like that's dangerous or have to attack and they're like kind uh-huh. of learning life without the attack and that it's actually not so bad it's safe like there's ways to direct their emotions, so to speak. Is that kind of how you see it? Yeah. I So I, yes, and I'm going to add a little bit of clarification. Please. So in terms of, um, so making sure it's really, really clear to the people listening as well, that um, the distance that we're working at, we shouldn't be getting any of that negative reaction. It should be more at the level of curiosity mm-hmm. that they're like, huh, what is that? It's sort of like if you had... Um, if you were stretching or doing yoga, you wouldn't, you're not going into deep stretch yet. It's just like, where can we stretch right now? Just this little first piece mm-hmm. um, of, and so it's, we should be getting kind of the level of curiosity. Below and the so threshold for major reactivity. Yeah, mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's, and it's for bat, the threshold is a little bit, um, it's further away than you would expect for regular training with treats because we're not distracting them with food. So we often are twice the distance that we would do if we were doing counter conditioning, for example. Okay. Um, because the dog is really only choosing between the environment and, uh, you know, the rest of the environment and that other dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, it's a nice far distance. Um, and anyway, yeah. And so then also in terms of tolerance, yes, it's tolerance, but it's also, um, I would say it's building trust, not mm-hmm. just tolerance. It's more of like, okay, I had the expectation that I would be attacked. Like that's what they normally have, but they're at a distance where at that distance, they're, they already feel safe. And so now that, that allows, um, their nervous system to, to, to offer pro-social behavior instead. Um, so there's a, there's a theory called polyvagal theory. That's, um, that essentially says that, um, mammals, I think, I think it's all mammals or maybe it's all animals, but definitely mammals that we, um, in order, in order to offer pro-social behavior, we need to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the key is that we're creating a safe scenario. And then from there, then exploration and curiosity can take over and they can get a better set of behaviors. Um, and like with your dog, so th- she might already feel safe, but it might actually might, or might not like there might that drive to like, I need to be there might actually be, I need to check out and make sure I'm safe. Yeah, could um, be. So, um, so I don't know. Um, and the, the cool thing is that it works no matter whether it's just frustration because they really want to play mm-hmm. or like they are absolutely are terrified of dogs or they're angry and they want to go bite them and want is not really the right word, but, um, so, but yeah, it's, it's a cool strategy because it works. It just reduces the arousal. So the brain can function, um, mm-hmm. in like an, an appropriate way. And how would you know, um, so you're working in a way below threshold, twice the distance of other counter conditioning. What are some clues that, oh yeah, we can move closer? And how would you decide mm-hmm. on that next level closeness? So it's always you're, it's always um, following the dog, essentially. So as long as they're not going in a straight line, then you're following them closer. And mm-hmm. their curiosity will pull them closer in. Um, in a me- sort of meandering way. So it's kind of like if you have this sort of curiosity meter, right? So, okay, so I'm using my arm to sort of like be like a speedometer. So um, 
so if the arousal is too low, then like they don't care that the other dog is there and you're not really doing bad, right? It's so far away that they're not paying attention. Um, at some point though, there's this level of engagement where they're able to, they're sort of drawn to go check it out. It's kind of like if you saw a gathering of people who were dressed up and looked like a festival, you might be like, Ooh, that looks kind of interesting. You sort of get a little bit closer. Um, if you had social anxiety, you might not go all the way to it, right? You might just like check it out a little bit without walking all the way over. Um, and so with our dogs right now, they don't have that personal check of like, oh, this is going to be too much for me. So they just walk all the way over and then they explode, mm-hmm. right? And so our job is for, to be the parachute to keep that level of arousal or excitement just in the curiosity zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the moment we see their spine aligned and facing toward the trigger, to me, that says that they're too excited. Okay. Um, and so that's when I do the slow stop. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I did, um, every year I do a sabbatical to try to I take about a month off of dog training and everything else to look at my business or look at some aspect of the work that I'm doing or just research something fun. And um, so when I developed BAT 2.0 in 2014, my sabbatical was focused on watching a lot of videos of dogs and when does over arousal start? Um, Because I was seeing people put dogs over threshold. And so I was looking for the simplest way to indicate that we've got a problem. And that straight line approach is definitely the key. And then I also read lots and lots and lots of research papers. That was kind of my, yeah. my two pieces during that time. That's so interesting. So let's say you're, you're trying to do it right. And then your dog wants to go in a straight line. So you let the leash slowly and then the dog stops, but it's at the end of the leash pulling hard. Mm-hmm. At that point, do you try to bring the dog closer or direct it just to get it moving sideways? Yeah. So at that, so whenever I stop them, kind of my, my, um, my rule that I'm sort of thinking through is, are, is their excitement going down or up right now? So once they're stopped, if it's continuing to go up, then I'll just call them away. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some specific strategies for that with the leash skills. Um, one called mime pulling, we're, we're sort of pretending like we're pulling to get their attention. Uh, we might just be calling them away. Depending on the dog, we might be dragging them away, right? If they're just like really losing their stuff. Um, I just, if I had a teleporter, I would just teleport them away, but that's not possible. Um, so, um, and so that's one reason we have them on a harness attached to the back so that we don't, uh, we're not putting pressure on their, their throat or their face or anything like that. Yeah. So if, if you're, if you did do a stop and they look a little bit excited, but then like a heart rate monitor, you know, would mm-hmm. say the heart is going down, then we just wait. Right. And I literally have put heart rate monitors on dogs, but you can also just use the tail height and the breathing mm-hmm. and that sort of thing to tell you what, what their heart is doing. Yeah. Um, but if you see them melting, that's good. So just wait them out. If you see them getting more um, stiff and more excited, then that's when you need to call them away. Okay. Um, and then next time, not so close. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's those yeah. surprise dogs that always throw me off. You know, we're walking, walking, I don't see anyone. And then someone comes really close and I'm like, like toast right now. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't the time we were walking home, me and the kids and my dog. I think Boca was off command. Cause usually I do some healing with her for at least part of the walk. I just don't mm-hmm. like to heal for a whole half hour. Like it's just exhausting. <laughs> yeah. I, and I don't think it's fair to the dog either. Yeah. I don't want to pay that much attention to whether she's correct or not. Anyway, so we were off command. I may have even switched to like her normal collar. And we were 
walking straight up the sidewalk, coming to a corner. And from the right, a couple with two do small dogs on way out in front of them <laughs> pop up. And I'm just like, ah, we both were like, Wait, which way are you going? <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> yeah. So that was very frustrating. And I'm like, I, I was mad at myself because I didn't catch it so that I didn't, I couldn't have like prepared better and set her up and for success uh -huh. and all of this, but it happens. Yeah. That does happen. Yeah. yeah. And I, um, I like teaching an emergency U-turn cue, which doesn't, it's not going to always work at first. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I got this from Patricia McConnell, but essentially you just rehearse that like emergency U-turn, like as if somebody has just popped out from nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and just this practice of calling the dog, you back up and then give treats. Um, and it's in, it's in the bat book. There's a description of it in there. Um, but yeah, essentially I use, um, I try to pick a cue that I know will come out of my mouth at a time of emergency. So like it actually could be an expletive, um, <laughs> but I also teach people to use, um, like a double entendre so they can use the phrase, call your dog as a recall cue for your own dog. Oh, uh -huh. So you say, call your dog and your dog like pivots back to you because they know they're about to get a treat. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, sometimes things just happen though. And it's like, the cool thing about bat is it's not the end of the world. It's just like, Oh, that was more than we could handle right now. Right. And exactly. Yeah. And then we just try next time to, to do, you know, do some more setups and just kind of yeah iron it out. But it's, it's not like counter conditioning where the idea is to teach dogs that all encounters are safe. Um, with bat, it's really, um, the concept is more, take your time and assess if an encounter is safe or not. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a much more, um, it's nuanced, but it's a more accurate way of um, thing to teach, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want a dog who's like being attacked by another dog being like, where's my treat? Um, <laughs> no, I want them that's to hilarious. actually be like, wow, this is an unsafe situation. I need to get out of here. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay. So I'm wondering, to, I'd like to switch gears to puppy classes. How okay. do you view these classes differently maybe than the average puppy class trainer, like from a big box pet store? Mm -hmm. I think you have some different views on this and I really want our listeners to, to hear them. So puppy classes for me, the point is really to, to teach dogs to be able to assess their situation and to respond in a way that matches what their family, what works for their family. Um, so for a puppy to not feel, um, threatened by the kind of the everyday things that are going to happen in that household and to know, um, what to do now, the really knowing what to do will come later. Um, those first few weeks and months, um, are really about teaching them that they're safe. Um, so that's really, I would say, instead of like, you could, you could almost call puppy socialization, like safety training for puppies, like teaching them that they are safe in lots and lots of different scenarios. So they are safe with other dogs. They are safe with people. They are safe in being enclosed. They are safe being restrained. Like all of these things that we might, um, they might experience. We're trying to create this, this, um, dictionary of what's normal for dogs so that later they're not surprised and can, um, they're not responding from a really reactive place. Um, uh, and so in terms of the the other classes, I, you know, I haven't honestly been to a big box store class in a long time, so I'm not sure. So this, um, hopefully they're getting better at this, but what I've seen in the past is that they're, um, the spaces are really small. 
which doesn't set the dog up for feeling safe. Um, the owners are also, the caregivers don't know what they're doing. So they're also getting reassurance by sort of patting the dogs a whole bunch. Um, they often are using gear that causes uh, lack of safety feelings to the dog. Um, a lot of times those big box stores are trying to sell expensive gear. Um, so like e-collars and prong collars and things like that, which doesn't mean like harnesses are also expensive, but they're, um, they feel a lot um, safer for dogs because it's not restricting on their airway. Um, so really training at that age should be about creating this sense of safety and um, building up curiosity and empowering them to make choices. Um, so teaching them that they can, they can go into a crate, but they can also ask to get out of the crate, right? I have a bell that I put on the inside of the crate that the dog can ring to say, Hey, I want out. Um, and so then over time, we gradually say, no, actually right now I heard the bell, but you have to stay in. Um, but allowing them to understand that it's not, they haven't been like stuck in a bear trap. It's, it's just like, they're being told no right now. Like, so they learn frustration tolerance, but not that feeling of, oh my God, I'm trapped away from my people and I'm scared. Um, so yeah, so my focus really is on uh, empowerment. Um, so I have a, a puppy class that I teach online called Empowered Puppy Raising. And it goes well, I think, with the more standard classes. So I think people have used it as sort of a supplement to a class that they're taking in person um, or individual socialization that they're doing in person. Um, because it really focuses on things like grooming and teaching them to do what I call the more please signal, uh, which is a way for a puppy to say, or a dog to say, I'm comfortable with what we're doing right now. So for nail trimming or for um, taking the temperature or all these things. So that's much more important to me than teaching obedience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with puppies for sure. There's so much that they have to learn about their world and being comfortable in it that you know, like, it's fine. Go ahead and teach your puppy to sit with a treat. But in my opinion, that's going to break down in six months anyway. So might as well wait <laughs> once they're a yeah. teenager. And then you're going to have to, you know, do things differently anyway. But yeah. And and there's, they, for me, a lot of the puppy classes, like if it's their first dog, right, that we're also teaching the people how to teach things. Right. But we don't have to teach them that with the standard things that people would do in competition, right? We can teach them chin targeting, for example, which is immensely useful. You can use it for all kinds of things. And the same set of training skills used for that can be used for, um, you know, if they want to teach them to, to lie down or roll over or any of those other things. Um, but I like to really focus on skills that are useful for things like grooming and vet care. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I love that. And I agree, even though you're the trainer. So <laughs> my agreement <laughs> doesn't matter as much. Um, and the so, recall, of course, I always focus on that. Too. Yeah, yeah, that's important. And I found with the recall with my dogs, you know, we had a border collie and she was perfect, trained to obedience and very reliable. Um, my current dog now, since she was little, she's just a natural recaller. It's almost as if it doesn't matter what word you use. If you say it in a happy, joyful noise and she was just out she's for like, one minute, she's like, oh, you're calling me like, oh, there you are. Like so happy to come back. And then I had one dog who was so like hard done by with recalls. Like, why are you making me come to you? <laughs> this is ridiculous. I'm free. I'm outside. You know, like it was just really hard and so some dogs I think are just more 
more recally, <laughs> and others, you know, it really is sort of like, no, this is not what I want. <laughs> you yeah. have to really work hard to get me to come back, even though I know how to do it in other environments. Yeah, well, it's kind of like the love languages, right? So for some dogs, loving up on them is the reinforcer. And so they're super excited to come back to because it's the opportunity for the reinforcement that works most for them mm-hmm. versus like, yeah, it's like freedom is my big reinforcer. So call me back and then let me go. And then now I will come back. Yeah. 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 So let's say somebody is in a puppy class, maybe not a big box store, but something with a little more space. I, I have to agree. Like whenever I've gone to those stores and I walk in and see the training area, I'm like, that's like for like small breed puppies, maybe two of them. Like how do you right. squeeze the humans and real dogs? Oh, it just sounds so like I feel claustrophobic <laughs> on behalf yeah, of the Lord people. Of the flies. Yeah. yeah, it yeah. just seems so <laughs> awkward. And yeah, you, you can't even have interaction or movement. But let's say you're in a bigger class, spacious, um, and maybe the trainer and you watch your puppy and maybe your puppy's a little shyer or not as interactive or there's like a bully dog. How would you, what would you say to pet parents to like empower them to kind of lead for their puppy if the trainer's a little more um, laissez-faire with how Uh doggies interact? Got it. So I would say that you are your dog's protector and that you know your dog and are paying attention more to your dog than the trainer is. So you may be seeing behavior that the trainer's not seeing because they were looking at another dog across the room, but now you just saw your dog do a paw lift and a lip lick and run behind your legs in order to get away from this other dog. Um, so one thing that I, uh, so certainly in terms of being an advocate, it is perfectly legitimate to say, you know, I'd like to. I'd like to play in a smaller, have my dog play in a smaller group. Can we make a, a, you know, a subgroup that would work better for my puppy? Or you can call it, you know, call them later on the phone and say, I really don't like the way that this other dog is behaving toward my dog. And you're the one that's going to have to deal with that problem for like the next 12, 13, 14 years. If your dog becomes aggressive to another dog, because he got attacked in puppy class. It is. um, So a lot of trainers, do puppy classes um, thinking that they're the easiest class because puppies are easy in a sense. They learn really quickly, but they also learn bad things really quickly. They learn to be scared very quickly. And so a lot of trainers who are newer to training are doing puppy classes and they shouldn't be. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and as, as, as trainers become experienced, one of their things that they should hopefully learn is that stepping in, like it's part of their job to point out the red flags and say, this is inappropriate behavior. And so the bully needs to be put in a kind of a separate area, reinforced for calmer behavior, play with an older dog, something. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it is, it is your responsibility to stand up for your puppy because they can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that, you know, some people just think, oh, dogs will work it out. They'll figure out their who's who and everything will be fine. And it's kind of, I mean, that's maybe true in a household if it's nothing really extreme going on. But mm-hmm. the way you were talking about it just made me think like if this was a preschool class and they did a short lesson and then they just sent the kids out and, you know, drink coffee on the side. Well, obviously right. you've got to like, yeah, exactly. You've got to intervene and kind of yeah. teach skills, you know, like this isn't okay. And why? And, you know, yeah. 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 And there are definitely, I mean, I, I did have uh, clients come to class who 
um, didn't understand it about play, right? And the dogs will play with each other by using their mouth and they chase each other. Um, and so looking for things like, is the chase bi-directional or, you know, was one dog the one running away and then they switch it, right? Playing. Are they doing um, things like a lot of verticality? Like if the dogs are up on their back legs and wrestling a lot, usually that's not the best sign. Um, or did this, did it suddenly speed up? So all the dogs are really running quickly. Again, that's a sign of too much arousal and not probably good choices. Um, mm -hmm. what's coming up next. The, like a lot of puppy classes will start off with play, which I don't actually find appropriate at all. Like we don't want to teach them like you walk in the room and then it's suddenly a free for all. Like, so I really love to do, I don't teach puppy classes in person anymore. I do more private stuff. Um, but when I did classes, we had um, the the owners come in with their dogs. Everybody settled down. We got relaxed. We released the dog who was the most shy first. So that dog can explore around the room. And then when that dog becomes in conversation with another dog, if you can see them looking at each other, then you can release the next dog. And then those two can talk to each other. And then they can sort of tag other dogs into the play. Um, and it, it ends up being much more appropriate than if you just release all the puppies at once. Oh, I love that. And I think that's what I heard you say in some other context that I, that I thought was so different and cool to let out the shy dog. So the shy dog can get the lay of the land and not feel like faced with 15 other puppies and then right. just Zoom cower. Yeah. 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 Totally. Oh, awesome. Yeah, these are great tips. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you feel like, you know, soapbox or just something that you think is so important for dog owners to know in general? Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm circling back to this other piece of like standing up for yourself. And uh, I actually have a, um, a, a whole video about that in my, um, so I have a different courses on my website. And one is like common behavior problems. And another one is about training people. And in that one, it's uh, what to do when you have a difference of opinion. Uh, and so I'm also thinking of, uh, you know, we are our dog's protector and everyone who's ever had a dog feels a little bit like an expert. And so when you encounter family members, for example, they may say, you should be doing this with your dog, right? Just like with parents, right? They tend to like just sort of get unsolicited advice. And so I would say, um, to, to circle back to this question, that, you know, trust your gut, like the behavior, the way that you're interacting with your dog, is this the kind, the spirit of interaction you want to be having with them? So any advice that you have should filter through that. Is this good for the relationship I have with this animal? And is it good for their well-being? Right. And uh, I find that a lot of our, and this is going a little bit on the sort of human side and maybe a little bit woo-woo, but more psychological, is that I find that our interactions um, with our dogs can mirror how we interact with our own self, with our inner child. And so when, when it comes to um, accepting our dogs for who they are and what they need, I find that it has a really positive benefit on the way that we treat ourselves. And the flip side, if we're really punitive with our dogs or really strict with what they do, uh, without taking their needs into account, that that we might also be doing the same things with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I'd uh, consider, like, look at it as a little bit of a mirror for what might be going on inside. 
Yeah, I think that there's a lot of parallels with that. The way we eat, the way we train, the way, you know, can can mirror a lot of other things going on in our lives. We kind of tend to do things the same way in different areas. The way you do one thing is the way you do everything. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And tell us what websites, um, I think you have two. I have two now. Yeah. So they will all be living on grishastewart.com at some point. Um, but right right now, I also have grisha.thinkific.com, um, mm-hmm. which is linked to from grishastewart.com. But it's all the the new um, the new courses and courses also I've been teaching for years and years. Uh, Empowered puppy raising, bat, uh, how to human, and um, there's a um, there's a new plan which is I have diamond and gold levels where with diamond people can watch everything that I have. They can read all my books. They can listen. They can download my music. Uh, with the diamond plan um, and so it's it's only like 29 bucks a month and you get all of the dog training you can eat essentially so um, I'm excited about this new school awesome thank you so much Grisha it was lovely to to talk to you and hear your perspective and I think our listeners will have learned a lot so thank you all right thanks Adina bye-bye Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page, as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.